Mark 8, 27 through 33 is what we're looking at this morning. And, and really, um, this is kind of the, the third part culmination of the two previous stories that we looked at. You wouldn't know it from, from kind of just reading over it real casually, but if I can rewind your minds a little bit back to what we were previously studying, Jesus was uh, had this mass feeding. It was his second one. The first one was with 5,000 people. The second was with 4,000. And the second one was, was uh, a group of Gentiles that he fed. And as he was leaving that city, uh, they, were, they got into the boat with the disciples, and they were going across the sea. And the disciples began to argue and, you know, oh, we forgot the bread. And, and there was this sort of moment where Jesus calls them out about their unwillingness to understand who he is, their, their inability to perceive who they're with. And then the next little block of text that we looked at there after that is this Jesus comes to the other side and he has an encounter with a blind man. He comes into the city and, and the crowd pulls him away and they want a miracle. And so Jesus, not wanting to make a spectacle of this man, he takes this man by the hand as, as God did to Israel in the, in, uh, when they were in bondage in Egypt. And he leads him out of bondage, leads him out of darkness, away from this group. Um, and he, he deals with this man's blindness. Now, this is the first miracle that we see Jesus perform in two stages. The first stage is that what Jesus does is he grabs him, he touches him, uh, he touches the man and lays hands on him, he spits uh, on the man's eyes, and then he asks the man, do you see anything? That, that phrase that Jesus uses there, it, it reminds us of Jesus's words to the disciples in the boat. You know, do you not see? Having, eye, having ears, uh, you know, do you not hear? You know, do you not perceive or understand? Jesus was in the process of using this man as a visual parable here for the disciples to understand that Although they think they see, they don't see. Now Jesus asks the man, do you see anything? And then the man replies, well, I see men like, you know, or men like trees walking or something of that nature. I don't forget the exact order there. However, it's clear that the man can, can make out, a, a, you know, a blurry sort of form, a vision, but yet he doesn't see clearly. And then again, Jesus touches the man once more, and then the man can see completely clearly. Now, we saw that this was really a parable for the disciples' hearts. They were with Jesus. They thought they knew who he was, but they don't really. And we saw that, uh, you know, Jesus was pointing that out in the boat. You guys have been with me. You should know who I am. Why are you worried about bread? I just made bread for 4,000 people. Bread shouldn't be an issue right now. And so, Jesus is seeking to point that out. Now, we finally come to the, the middle of the Gospel of Mark. Now, we said when we began to, to study the Gospel of Mark, Mark was written for the purpose of telling the story of the real Jesus. At the time of Mark's writing, the early eyewitnesses had, be, um, had begun to die off. And so the Jesus story was getting, uh, it, it was getting twisted and people were making up their own, you know, ideas about Jesus. And so, you know, at the, the danger of that was that anybody could say like, oh, well, I was there and I saw Jesus blowing fire. And then pretty soon there would be nobody left 
who was also there and be like, no, that's not true. And so Mark sought to lay out an orderly account of who Jesus is while the eyewitnesses were alive so that they could corroborate what he had written. And so this is what he's doing. And he begins his gospel by saying that this is the gospel, you know, in the account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's what Mark's out to prove, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, up until this point, we've seen many opportunities for Jesus to prove that, but only God himself has, at the baptism, has said that Jesus is the Son of God, and then the demons have professed and confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's, there's been an, an irony throughout the whole book where it seems like people get who he is, but there's a, a tension that takes place, and every time someone thinks that they know who he is, Jesus tells them, don't say anything. And here we're at the middle point, and we begin to see that Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, and he becomes here like that blind man who sees half clearly. He doesn't have the whole picture. We'll look at that as we get into it. So starting in verse uh, 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a city that was 25 miles north of Bethsaida, where they were currently at. So it's a, about a day's journey. And the area that they were going into was primarily a Gentile territory. It, it was named after Caesar Augustus, but the area was ruled by Philip, the Tetrarch. And so it was commonly referred to as, um, as Philip's Caesarea. You know, it was his area. There's another city called Caesarea, but this one is complete, it's right, um, it's just directly above Bethsaida. Now, Philip, he refurbished it, and he was a part of that Roman rule there, and at the time, and this is key to our story, you have to know that Rome was the oppressor of Israel. And so, as they, as they journey to this outer region, um, you know, they, they move further north. They're coming to an area that is known for paganism, that is known to be, uh, you know, hostile to the Jews. Additionally, not, not in our story this morning, but some years after this happened, you know, around, uh, I believe it's around like in uh, somewhere, I'm a little bit rusty on my dates, but it's somewhere between like 60 and 66 uh, A.D., um, there was the, the Maccabean Revolt, and that happened at Caesarea Philippi. There was part of that took place there. It was this great revolution where uh, a, a Jew named Judas, he rose up and led this army against Rome to take, you know, to take back the city, to, to rid them, to rid uh, the Holy Land of the Romans. And so there's these connotations that take place um, not only with Rome oppressing Israel in this city in Jesus's time, but later to the readers of the book of Mark as they would, they would be familiar with this. This would be something that would be fresh in their minds. And so Jesus is, is Mark seeking to write an account and to demonstrate that Jesus isn't who they think he is and who they want him to be. Now, the city was associated with, of course, you know, the imperial rule, but also had these messianic connotations because of Judas Maccabees rising up and, you know, trying to overtake the city. 
So Jesus comes and he's, he's traveling with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Simple question. Who do people say that I am? Now, ordinarily in Judaism, it would be the disciples that would ask a rabbi a question. But as we've seen in the past, Jesus isn't an ordinary rabbi. Normally, the, the disciples would choose the rabbi that they wanted to follow, but Jesus went and he chose his disciples. And now Jesus poses a question to them. Now, it seems dumb for Jesus to ask this in our minds as we're like thinking about this because we're reading the text and we see again and again the claims that are made against Jesus. And Jesus wasn't confused. He knew what people were saying about him. He heard the accusations from the Pharisees. He heard what the crowds thought of him. And, and that is linked you know, closely with his desire for uh, the crowds not to tell anybody about who he is. But he's asking this question as a part of a larger question. This is kind of like the little lead-in teaser to get them to where he really wants to, to get to the heart of the issue with them. So the first question is, he says, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, and they told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, this is the same kind of judgment that we uh, heard earlier in chapter 6 when Herod is trying to reconcile who Jesus is, and he's like, I think it's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And, you know, they're, they're making these similar accusations about who Jesus is. But more than that, um, ever since Moses had foretold that a new prophet would come, the people looked for this new coming prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses makes this prophecy um, in verse 15, and I'll read verse 18 also. It says, The Lord your God would raise up a prophet, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So ever since Moses had foretold of this coming prophet, the people waited for this person who would come and who would be the final prophet, who would speak conclusively for God. There was this expectation, this hope, and so there were a lot of things that the people thought about Jesus, uh, you know, among, it's, I mean, to be lumped in with John the Baptist and with Elijah, that's, that's pretty high praise within, uh, you know, Israel's history. They had a lot of great prophets, and, and there's, I mean, if they said that on any of us, we'd be, like, pumped, because, like, they're the elite of, you know, religious figures and and leaders in Israel's history. But yet, the comparisons are inadequate to who Jesus truly said he was. They, they weren't good enough. Those comparisons may have been seemingly honorable, but they really took away from the, the worth and the fullness of, and uniqueness, specifically, of who Jesus is. And so Jesus doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to be simply known as one of these other prophets. This is kind of the same sort of thing that we hear today. We hear these examples like Jesus is a great moral teacher. 
Okay, yeah, he had some great moral, you know, lessons. You know, Jesus, he led, you know, like Moses, he performed miracles. Yeah, he did that, but he did a lot more. You know, like Elijah, he fed, you know, he made food when there was no food. Yeah, he did that, but he did more than that also. And like every other prophet, he was able to do what they did, but he did more than that. And he reveals his purpose in coming uh, a little bit later in our passage. Now, they make these comparisons here um, about who the people say that he is. Now, in verse 29, Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus now switches gears here. He, he, he moves from this idea of popular opinion, like, hey guys, what's the word? Jesus didn't need to know what the word on the street was. He knew like what people thought about him. He was very intentional in what he was doing. But here he's giving an opportunity for the disciples to make a judgment about what other people are saying, to, to kind of survey what's being said and to make a judgment and come to a conclusion about what is being said about him. But now he, he shifts the, the discussion, he changes directions completely, and he confronts the disciples with like a very specific, crucial question. He says, but who do you say that I am? You know, he, he comes to them and he says, what about you guys? what's your opinion? What do you think? Don't tell me what everybody else thinks now. I know what everybody else thinks. Are you just with them? What do you think? He's getting at a greater issue here. The, the disciples now, they have to separate themselves from public opinion and form their own personal confession about who they believe Jesus to be. They go on to make this confession, but Jesus purposefully separates them from this public opinion because he doesn't want their confession to be based on, on you know, the public opinion or hearsay. He wants their confession to be based upon his experience and time with them. They've seen him heal. They've seen him teach. They've seen him interact with the authorities. And now they should have enough data, you know, in their little minds to make a decision about who he is. Jesus has continually revealed himself again and again and again, and here he comes and now asks them, who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus is also asking more than this. He's asking them to, to make a transition, not one that we see in just a simple answer, but one that that would be, that, that goes a little bit beyond. He's asking them to go from, from just these spectators, these people who are standing on the sidelines observing and calling them in to be active participants. All right, guys, now's the time. Who do you say that I am? Are you with me? Are you coming with me from here on? Who do you say that I am? That's the question that Jesus poses to them because it's only going to get more intense from here on out. And so he needs to know who are you with me? Do you understand who I am? Now, <clears throat> this is kind of the same way that, uh, you know, in the same way, anyone who has heard and seen, you know, the work of Jesus transforming the life of someone else, anyone who has, who has heard the gospel preach, they have to make a similar decision regarding who Jesus is. And you either join with him and come into into, you know, 
discipleship with him in purpose and in mission, or you are severed from that connection, from following him in that manner. He's going to a very specific place, as we'll see. Now, Peter answers him, and he says, you are the Christ. He makes this great declaration. Peter's answer is that Jesus is the Christ. This is God's Messiah that has been promised. Now, like I said, up to this point, only God and demons have made this claim. Up until this point, it's just no human has, has said these words about who Jesus is. But here, Peter says it, and, and when we look at um, Matthew 16, a little bit more description of this same instance, Jesus even commends Peter on it. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So like Peter's pumped because he's like, I'm the first one to discover who the Messiah is. He's doing the happy dance right there around in circles because Jesus just told him like, you hear from God in front of all his buddies. And so like for just, you know, a blue collar fisherman to kind of follow this random homeless guy around and then have the declaration, you hear from God. It's like, oh yeah, you know, he, he is pumped. He is wanting to flaunt that for sure. If any of us, like that was pronounced upon us, like you hear from God, from Jesus. It's like, yes, amen, amen, I do. Now, he says that Jesus is the Christ. The Greek word Christ translates out to the Hebrew Messiah, meaning to anoint. That's what that word means. And in the Old Testament, there were three classes of people that were anointed. There were prophets, there were priests, and kings. But the third class, the kings, they influenced this development of the Messiah. They were the ones through which we have this idea. The most common conception of the Messiah we find, you know, uh, in places like Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, this, this coming Messiah, is coming to you. Righteous and, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Furthermore, in, in we see this idea carried out in the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, uh, verse four through six. He says, I will set shepherds over them who, are, who will care for them and they shall fear uh, no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So these are texts within the history speaking to who this Messiah is. Now, the Messiah was this heavily anticipated Jewish leader who was thought to come and destroy this oppressive rule of Rome. And so they're in that city where there's that great oppression already. And Mark's readers are reading this in the context of understanding that there was already just this great war that took place, you know, not too long after this in order to kind of make this come to pass. 
And so there's this anticipation. The, the term Messiah was like this, you know, nationalistic, you know, militaristic term in the minds of the Jews. Now, Jesus tells them, tells Peter in verse 30, you know, and the disciples, he says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, we have saw this in the past. This is a continuing of this idea of the messianic secret. It's this theme that kind of goes throughout the whole book. And Jesus prohibits people from speaking about who he is and what he has done. You know, whenever you read that, you're always like, why in the world? This is like Jesus always said, like, no telling anybody about me. It's just, you know, you come to it again and again, you're like, I don't get it, whatever, just flip the page. The reason that Jesus does this is because he will not be rightly known as a revolutionary. He won't be rightly known as, you know, a miracle worker or the things and instances in which people know him through their exchanges, through their interactions. Now, Peter's told to be quiet about who Jesus is because, like the blind man, he still doesn't see clearly. He still doesn't perceive and understand. He sees in that blurry fashion where he has an idea. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's totally right. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. But only at Jesus' death and resurrection will we understand what that means. Now, Peter's called Jesus the Messiah, but now Jesus begins to explain to him what that means. And this leads to like all sorts of crazy confusion and nuts emotions. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. So he began to teach them. They didn't understand the situation. And again, Jesus is wanting to inform them of what the idea of, you know, messiahship means. He's wanting to educate them much like he does. Jesus is a teacher. He's wanting to show them the truth. What does he teach them? He teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, the first thing he teaches them is that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The suffering of the Son of Man would not, I mean, this is like, when they're hearing this, their minds just explode. Because uh, the suffering and death of the Son of Man was not an expectation of the Messiah. This was, this, you know, and, and it's even more interesting because this suffering, as we'll see, it doesn't happen at the hands of, of you know, just this pagan people, but it happens, Jesus indicates here, at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. The people who put Jesus to death are not like the worst criminals in the world's history. They're supposedly the most righteous people in the world's history. Those people who would appear to be closest to God, those are the ones who actually are opposing him. Now, Jesus says that he must, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's indicating there that this isn't going to be a coincidence. He is planning to die. This is his plan. It's a voluntary action that is happening. He's totally fine right now, hanging out in the wilderness with his disciples. 
but he tells them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's planning this. This is, it's, absolute, it's absolutely necessary that Jesus die. This is what he says. You know, he's telling Peter, Jesus, you know, he's telling Peter, Peter, if I don't die, the world cannot be renewed. You cannot be, you know, transformed into a new creation. You cannot know me completely and fully unless I die. Now, he tells them additionally that he will arise. This is the first you know, instance where it's very clear that Jesus is not just going to die, but he will arise. And not only will, you know, that word kind of speaks there to like two things. Not only will he rise up from the ground, but he will overcome death. And when Jesus addresses this, Peter kind of flips out a little. Jesus kind of speaks to this idea of Messiah in a way that was totally beyond recognition to the Jews. They would not they would not understand. This was not supposed to be in their minds what Messiah's duty was. He wasn't supposed to come and get killed. He w- he was supposed to come in and take over the world. Now, Jesus doesn't do anything regularly though. He he comes and redefines the purpose of the Messiah. He's, you know, coming in and and teaching in parables that, you know, he's the inbreaking kingdom of God is coming and that, that, you know, he loves sinners. He's redefining the law and saying like, you think it's here and I am raising the bar even so much higher. He demonstrates God's love for the Gentiles. It's like, this guy is totally like the furthest away from this common expectation of Messiah. Now, not only does Jesus like, is he the total opposite of what the expectation of the Jewish Messiah was? He redefined, he, or he, his, he makes it his mark of his Messiahship to be that specific thing which he does define his Messiahship by. It, it, he says that it, the meaning of his life and mission is it's not about victory and success, but about death and resurrection. It's about coming to suffer at the hands of the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, to die and rise again after three days. Now, in verse 32, it says that he said this plainly, you know, which means he, he spoke it boldly or confidently. Up to this point, it's been kind of, Jesus has spoken parables to them about this. Now, Peter gets this idea. He takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, in declaring Jesus as the Christ, G- Peter makes this great confession. You are the Christ. And everyone's like, yes. Like if you've been with us for any like moment of studying it, you're finally like, finally, somebody gets it. Finally. You know, like we're pumped. It's like, oh my gosh. It's like when you see kids trying to do something really simple and they finally get in and you're like, oh my gosh, finally. It's like that same little idea. You have this like little kid who finally gets it. Peter has this understanding, you know, he supplies the right title, you are the Christ, and we all go, woo, we're pumped. But he has the wrong understanding, because now he takes Jesus aside, and he's like, come here, Jesus, let me have a little chat with you. Common thought at the time was that the Messiah would come as a great military leader to destroy all the other nations. 
There's one text that they cited specifically. It's not a, it's not a biblical text that's a part of the canon, but something that was important to Jewish culture. It's, it, listen carefully because it sounds like it is. Psalm of Solomon, not song or, you know. Uh, Psalm of Solomon speaks of this, and this would be fresh you know, in the, in the Jewish mind. This is where they drew a lot of their idea, you know, before they had the canon of, of Scripture. This is where they drew some of their ideas from. Psalm, Psalm of Solomon says, O Lord, raise up their king, this is speaking of this anticipated Messiah, the son of David, that he may reign over thy servant Israel. Gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from the nations or Gentiles who trample her to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. He shall destroy the pride of the sinner as a potter's vessel. With a rod of iron, he shall break in pieces all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nation with the word of his mouth. At his rebuke, nations shall fall before him, and he shall reprove sinners for the thoughts of their heart. He shall gather together a holy people, uh, a holy people whom he shall lead in righteousness, and he shall judge the tribes of the people who have been sanctified by the Lord his God. And he shall not suffer unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst, nor shall there dwell with them any man who knows wickedness, for he shall know them that they are all sons of their God. So this is where like, they draw a lot of their idea about who the Messiah was, you know, or currently is if you're still a Jew and you think Jesus is the Messiah. A lot of this is, is built up here. It's this idea that, that the Messiah would be this crazy military leader who would just come in shattering people's teeth with like a giant rod of iron. He's just like the ultimate like gangster, basically, is kind of like what they're saying. Like He's just going to come in and destroy people. This was the common expectation of the Messiah coming in. Now, up until this point, when Jesus speaks here, the Messiah was not identified with this suffering servant that we see, you know, in Isaiah. And so Peter's naturally offended here when Jesus says that that the Messiah is going to come and die. And it's like, "Mm, that's not like, I've been in this a long time. I know like, I'm a good Jewish boy. I know all my history. This is not how the Messiah is supposed to work. Now, Jesus, he knows the idea, uh, you know, they, Jesus and Peter, they both have this understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. Their disagreement, their argument is over what the purpose of that Messiah is to do, you know, that, that work that the Messiah is to accomplish. Now, verse 33, Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus turns, he faces the, the disciples. He does this because Peter is kind of representing the group there. Peter's their, you know, he's kind of like their leader, of the disciples. He was the first one chosen there, and he is now kind of the one who speaks for them. And so Jesus turns towards them, and this the disciples, they, they most likely share this common messianic understanding growing up in this, and he speaks to them. 
He speaks to Peter, but as the representative of them all, and he tells them, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter just went from like, I hear from God, to like getting yelled at in front of everybody, and now he just feels super stupid. It's like, you had it there for a second, you should have just kept your mouth shut. <laughs> now, he calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan means adversary or one who opposes God. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling him out on. You know, Peter sets himself as one who opposes the revealed will of God. Jesus says, this is what God wills. This is my mission. This is the purpose of my coming. And it hasn't been any secret. Jesus has said this throughout the entire time with the disciples, like, you know, the, the purpose of his coming is, is to die. And so here, Peter opens his mouth at like the dumbest time and opposes God, and he takes on that same adversarial side as Satan holds against God, opposing God's plan. So what we see here, now, we see that and we think, that's stupid, <laughs> That's really stupid. You should, when Jesus says, like, we're going to, I'm going to do this, we shouldn't say, yeah, that's a bad idea. Let me tell you how it's really supposed to go. You know, it's like, I'm going to come and I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And it's going to be by the most religious people in, in your community. And, like, I'm pretty sure everyone's like, that's a bad idea. That's not a great idea to stand by. And we look at him from the perspective of, like, that's really stupid. You shouldn't have done that. But this is, on a more practical level for us, this is exactly how we live our lives. When the Lord's trying to work something out in us, the Lord's trying to do something and to teach us something or to lead us somewhere, and then we're a step up and we're like, no, that's really dumb. Like, let me tell you how the plan is supposed to go because you don't know how the plan is supposed to go. I've been planning my life for a long time, and you're losing it. This isn't the way that I'm supposed to go. And in doing that, we take on that same attitude, that same role as Peter did, where we oppose God's will as Satan did. It's, it's difficult, or I mean, it's not difficult, it's tricky to notice. At one moment, Peter is speaking you know, these great things that are revealed only by God. But then in the next, he's just spouting off some stuff and he doesn't even know it, but he's speaking, you know, as, you know, as a vessel of Satan, basically. He's coming against God's revealed plan. It's tricky because oftentimes, I wonder how many times this takes place in our lives where it's like, sometimes we're giving out advice and it's like good godly advice, but other times we're just kind of like flapping our mouth and it's maybe not lining up with God's revealed plan or we're trying to tell people like, oh, find your personal happiness versus find what God is leading you in and calling you to. It's something to just be aware of as we, we open, you know, our mouths. I, I was looking um, as a result of this. I was kind of just gazing through different passages in, in Proverbs that speak of just the... Uh, of speech and when to open your mouth and when to close your mouth. There's too many good ones to share. So I just said, you know, go read Proverbs instead. But there, there is a lot of wisdom in keeping your mouth shut as you, as you read the book of Proverbs. 
Now, what Jesus, he reveals his will, and Peter tries to, you know, divert Jesus away from that, like, oh, nope, you're coming over here, that's a bad idea. But in doing that, he opposes he opposes the, the will of God. He opposes Jesus. But suffering is the only way to destroy the, the strongholds of Satan. Uh, you know, and Jesus declared that as, as his work earlier in the gospel. It, you know, in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, even when he has an interaction with a demon, you know, he comes up to them and they're like, are you here to destroy us? Even they know like, what Jesus is coming to do. Even you know, they speak to him with that knowledge in mind. Now, Jesus doesn't command Peter to like, ah, get out of here. You know, you're lame. He says, get behind me, Satan. He's not saying that, that Peter is Satan. He's saying your mindset is in line with that which opposes God. Why don't you get behind me again and be discipled by me instead of trying to do your own thing? He's calling Peter to resume this path that he's kind of like lost for a moment because he thinks he's all hotshot because he heard from God. Now, he makes, Jesus tells Peter, you're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is thinking here in human terms. He's not con- considering what God's will is, but he's only thinking in his own knowledge. Remember, he's only half you know, he can only see like halfway. He's half blind. So don't take directions from a blind person. You know, you don't want to be, have someone, you know, tell you where to go if they can't really fully and completely see. And so Peter wanted to correct Jesus's idea of this messianic purpose. But Jesus tells him, you know, he's trying to tell Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Now, Peter, he most likely wanted, like, he's been waiting for this moment his whole life. And so he's thinking, like, the Messiah is coming. I know who he is. The Messiah is assured victory. So he's thinking, like, this is going to be the most epic military assault ever because it's a promised victory. So if there's any time where, like, I can be a ninja and, like, this is my slow motion battle scene, it's now because we're promised to come out on the other side and to win. So this is like the moment where like he's trying to do backhand springs in his mind off of, you know, like the temple and like slashing people and stuff like in Peter's mind, like this is the, the moment, like this great crazy scene where he's just going to get nuts. And then Jesus is like, no, I'm going to die and you're not going to get to do any of that. And he's like, huh, like I've been replaying that in my mind. And not only, like, did I find the Messiah, but I'm, like, the first lieutenant. Like, I get to be, like, I get to, like, hold the flag and lead the charge. And now I don't get to do any of it. I'm sure there was great disappointment here. It would be difficult for Jesus to take on, you know, this militaristic rule and wage this battle if Jesus was dead. And so Peter's trying to fight with him, and he's thinking in these human terms. He doesn't understand the, the way that God thinks. Now, Jesus, he's considering this. His messianic victory would be one that was waged over supernatural enemies, that he would come and he would fight in battle 
not through conventional means, but through his own death and resurrection. He would win by losing. He would defeat the enemy and, and save everyone by losing his own life. Jesus is going to take the servant's towel and to wash the disciples' feet. He's going to lay down his life for those who he loves instead of taking up a sword and charging into battle. He will win, but it will not be through the means that Peter expects. Now, Peter's thinking is way off, and Jesus tells him that. He's like, you're, you're thinking in human terms. He doesn't understand, and nor do we understand, the things of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So not only do we, you know, like not only can we, are God's thoughts greater than our thoughts, not only are they so above our thoughts, our ways are not his ways. He's got a completely different method. And so what, what needs to happen is we need a new mind, as Romans tells us, Romans 12, 2, that we don't need to be conformed to this world or that human thinking, but to be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. Having that renewing that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. This is exactly the problem with Peter. He's thinking in human terms, and he doesn't have a renewed mind, so he's thinking about his own will and not the will of God. And it tells us further in Romans 12 that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so that is the mindset that we need to have. We need to be submitting ourselves to God to renew our mind so that we are able to care about the things that he cares about. And that's, you know, it's, it's a common thing that we talk about in our church all the time, you know, in church planting and in the city. We don't want to come with our own agenda. We want to figure out what Jesus is doing because it's his church and he loves the world and he's our, our, our pastor, our leader. We got to figure out what he's doing and we want to join him in what he's doing. We don't want to tell him what he's doing because we don't know. We're not in charge. We want to find out what he's doing and so we pray you know, corporately and personally, we pray together and figure out, like, Lord, what are you doing? It's a common prayer request in our prayer meetings. Lord, show us what you're doing in this city. We want to be a part of what you're doing, and then we want you to enable us to help you, to come alongside you, to work and serve with you in that. We don't want to do stuff for you. We want to do stuff with you. And so this is what we're being called to. Now, there's more to the story, but we're going to look at it next week because we see what this would entail for the disciples. One of the other reasons that Peter's probably freaking out a little bit about this idea of his master dying uh, is because the disciples, not just the 12 disciples, but uh, those who followed a rabbi, they shared in the same fate as that rabbi. So if Jesus is saying that he's going to die, then all of a sudden it's like, we're going to die too? I don't know about this deal. All of a sudden, we think we know who you are, and now you're telling us you're going to die. That means we're going to die. And so they're, you know, obviously they're a little bit confused. And so Jesus is going to speak to that, you know, in, in the next passage. As he says, take up your cross, follow me. He, he, he speaks of the cost of discipleship. 
And so we're, so there is a great cost to it, but as we see, you know, and it's kind of the core text, you know, in the book of Mark, and it's one that we come back to in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's the summary of the mission of Christ. You know, he came on our behalf to suffer for our sins that we might know him in his death and resurrection. And we'll learn about what that means next week. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful again for your word. We pray that you would minister, Lord, it to us, that you would let it sink deep into our hearts and that you would allow us, Lord, to respond to you. Lord, to, to consider together, Lord, corporately as a church, who do, we, who do we say that you are? Are you, you know, just somebody that we want to, you know, a Jesus that we make up to be convenient for us? Or, Lord, are you someone that leads us and we submit our lives to? Lord, both as a church and, and as individuals. We pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would work that out in our own hearts. Lord, that we would be able to see the great cost, Lord, that, of you laying down your life. Lord, and we're so thankful that you did it even when we didn't understand, when we were your enemies, when we, like Peter in this instance, opposed you, as Romans tells us. Lord, when we were your enemies, you demonstrated your love towards us through the work of the cross. And we're thankful, Lord, that, that God raised you from the dead for our justification. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would continue to work in us, Lord, that you would grow us, Lord, that you would equip us for the work of the ministry, that we might love and serve each other, that we might love and serve our neighbors, our co-workers, those that we come into contact with. Lord, help us to join you in mission and in purpose. We love you, Jesus. Amen.